Thank you for joining us today. We'll begin our study of the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. We will discuss the rapture, Jesus' second coming, and other end-time events, as well as the trials we go through in this life. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us up in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this group. We thank you for the folks that are able to dial in or listen in remotely. We thank you so much for your word. And as we begin a new study today of Second Thessalonians, and we'll continue discussing the end times. Father, I'm just so thankful that you have called us, you've chosen us, you've extended your grace to us so that we do not have to go through the terrible tribulation time, which we'll be talking about. And because of that, we should just be so thankful. We are so blessed and we're so appreciative. Thank you for your son and what he's done for us. Father, I just ask that you speak through me. Let it be your words, not mine. And anyone else who speaks up, lead our discussion in a way that can help us all grow in our relationship with you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are going over to 2 Thessalonians. So if you'll just find your way over there now. Just to set this up, much of this I covered when we did 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians was written by Paul. It's estimated somewhere in 51 to 52 AD, probably written from Corinth. The reason for the letter is that the church began to think that they had missed the rapture. The persecution was really, really strong. Somebody, some false teachers had written a letter that purported to be from Paul, which it wasn't, that said that the rapture had already happened and that they were in the middle of tribulation. It's reference. We'll see it next week. I'll just show you real quick. If you go over to chapter 2, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's talking about the rapture, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or by a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So that's what he's referring to. Somebody had written a letter and it got everybody all worked up. They thought they had missed the rapture, that they were in the tribulation. Some of them were beginning to think, well, they didn't need to work anymore because, you know, it's over. So he's going to address all that. That was the reason for this second letter which it's been estimated it came out maybe just months after First Thessalonians. But it was written by Paul during his second missionary journey described in Acts 15.36 to 18.22. In First Thessalonians, you'll recall, Paul taught that the rapture would come unexpectedly, and now he's going to address in Second Thessalonians that, no, there's going to be some precursors some events before the tribulation comes, and he'll discuss the judgment that will occur during tribulation. But he's going to begin the epistle with encouragement first, because he's really trying to calm everyone down. They've had this misunderstanding from this letter that I described that was not from Paul. So he's going to try to calm them down. And he's going to tell them that the day of the Lord, which is tribulation, it's judgment day, has not arrived yet that we're going to go through lots of trials and tribulations in this life. That's just part of it. He's going to discuss that as well. 
and God uses that in a way to grow us in our strength of our faith and what have you. So we'll see some of that as we go through this. Now, let me give you a little more background that I discussed when we opened 1 Thessalonians. It is written by Paul, as I said. You'll recall that Paul is a Roman citizen, Jewish-born. He used to persecute Christians until Jesus appeared to him after Jesus' resurrection. He was a Jewish leader, highly, highly educated. He was a Pharisee. He was imprisoned by Nero in A.D. 67 and executed in A.D. 68. Thessalonica is one of the few cities that Paul visited that has existed continuously from that day even to the modern time. German Nazis captured it in 1941 and executed most of its 60,000 Jews. It's still one of Greece's most important cities. It was a prominent seaport in Paul's day, and it was a very important city then in the province of Macedonia, which is now northern Greece today. It was founded in 315 B.C. and conquered by Rome in 168 B.C. and became the capital of Macedonia. It's called a free city because it didn't have to pay taxes to Rome. There's some history there. If you want more of that, go listen to the recording on 1 Thessalonians. Now, there's going to be some references, just like in 1 Thessalonians. He's going to mention Salvanus and Timothy. Who are these people? Salvanus, that's a Roman name. His Jewish name is Silas, so you probably recognize that. He was a Jew and a prominent member of the Jerusalem church. He accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey, and so we see that he is with him as he's writing First and Second Thessalonians. He eventually also was a scribe for Peter. I mentioned that when we were studying First Peter. You can look at that in 1 Peter 5.12. Silas became Paul's missionary partner. I talked about this also when we studied 1 Thessalonians because Paul and Barnabas actually split over a disagreement about John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. You can go look at that in Acts 15.40 in that when they split, then Silas became the missionary partner with Paul. And Timothy will also be mentioned. Timothy was a young protege of Paul and accompanied Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. So that's probably enough to kind of get us set up for this this morning. So let's go over to 2 Thessalonians and get started. We see Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that Paul is equating both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, two of, of the Trinity, uh, two members of the Trinity. And of course, the Holy Spirit is there living inside the people in the church in Thessalonica. And he says the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So He's describing this personal, spiritual, and eternal union that we have as Christians with God the Father and Jesus Christ. And then verse 2 is his typical sort of greeting he has in most of his letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, as we know, is unmerited favor from God, which gives us peace. It is through grace that we're reconciled with God. 
We've received the forgiveness of our sins by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and received our salvation. It's a gift, and you can't earn a gift. It's been given to us. So those who think you need to do a bunch of stuff to earn your salvation, uh, you've got a different gospel than what's written in my Bible. It's a gift. We'll look at Ephesians 2 a little bit later, but it is a gift. It's clearly a gift that we cannot earn and that we don't deserve. It was given to us. And we get tremendous peace because we as Christians who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we should have tremendous peace because we know where we're going. And when you talk to people and ask them, where are you going to go when you die? And they say, well, I don't really know. I hope heaven. I don't know how you live like that. If I didn't know where I was, well, I lived like that for a long time. I didn't know where I was going until somebody really explained the Bible to me and what the true gospel is. And now I have tremendous peace. I feel like a weight lifted off my heart. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren. You notice we ought always, so it's an obligation. We should have gratitude for what God has done for us and because of that, we should give thanks to God for not only what he's done for us, but also for other believers. Let me keep reading and then I'll explain. As is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. So that means your faith is increased. It's strengthened. And the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. So this sacrificial service that we should have towards one another. He's saying your faith has grown, and it's interesting to me when we were over in First Thessalonians, you can look at chapter 3, verse 12, so just a few months prior to Paul writing this, he had prayed that their love would grow, and now he has heard, it's been reported to him, that it has in fact grown. And let me show you a couple of verses on what he's talking about here. Let's look at this strengthening of faith. Remember, these people he's writing to, they're being persecuted severely severely for their faith. Let me first show you 1 Peter 1, 6-7, which we looked at when we were over studying 1 Peter just a month or so ago. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So even Peter was talking about this persecution, these trials, these difficulties that we go through. What they are there, Peter described it as proving your faith. When you have saving faith, you can get through those trials and even grow closer in your relationship with the Lord through those trials. And that's what Paul is trying to describe here. And Larry, this growing, these trials, this is equivalent to the sanctification. It is part of the sanctification part process. Of. Yes. Okay. Sanctification is the process we go through just studying the Bible is part of our sanctification process because we're growing in our knowledge of God. We're growing in our faith. The sanctification process begins the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ and will continue until we die 
or if it happens earlier, the return of Jesus Christ. And at that time, we will then be perfect. We will have no more sin. But that won't happen until one of those two events. That is constant. Constant. Okay. And the trials are there to help us mature in our faith. The people who fall away, who don't make it, we read about that in Matthew 13 in the parable. There's some people who will profess sort of a infatuation type of belief. In other words, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, and we have many people like that in our churches. They don't really have saving faith. They've never really given themselves to the Lord. It's just kind of a thing to do. Or they may believe they got to earn it. They go to church on Sunday to check the box. Hopefully, I'm earning my way. They don't have saving faith. And as soon as something bad comes along, you know, a spouse dies, a child dies, something terrible in their life happens, they say, if that's God, I don't want any part of him, and they're gone, and they didn't have saving faith. So when we get through our trials and we come out on the other side, many times even closer to God than we were when we went in, That's evidence of true saving faith. I've mentioned to you, I've got a dear friend who his wife died of cancer not too long ago, and it was tough. It was tough on him going through it with her, but he will be the first to tell you just going through that. He was a Christian before, but now he's so much closer to the Lord than I said. That's evidence that you have true saving faith. So that's what Paul is talking about here. There are a couple of more. Let me show you Romans 8.35, and it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as believers, all these things will happen to us along the way. Maybe not all of them, but we're going to go through a lot. And when you have true saving faith, you aren't going to be separated from the love of God. You'll come through it on the other side, even closer to God. Larry, can I intervene something real quick? Yes, please. For us on this side of heaven, we are constantly persecuted, and there are many trials. And so when you say when we come out on the other side, and it draws us closer to the Lord, my relationship with God, He continues to show me, that the things that I endure, the pain that I endure, draws me closer to Him to rely on Him, because I can't do anything without Him and the Holy Spirit. Absolutely right. And and so it continues to illustrate in my life. God continues to use examples in my life that people go through constant persecution, and that the only true belief that we have in the saving grace that you talk about is to go back to what got us here, and God continues to remind us in that in James and in First Peter and what you're talking about. It's beautiful, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out as well, because you mentioned James. Let's go take a look at that. I'm in James chapter 1, and beginning in verse 2, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So we should actually have joy when we're 
going through really tough times. I know I'm not telling you I've mastered it. Paul did. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what this does. It strengthens us. And there was one commentator had an interesting comment. I'm of the camp that the rapture is going to happen before tribulation, before the great terrible tribulation. And he said, we as Christians go through the little tribulation. Unbelievers are going to go through the great tribulation. So we don't have to go through all that, which I thought was kind of interesting. He's doing that to help rub off those rough edges that we have and learn that we got to trust and depend on God. We can't do it on our own. Okay, so I'm going back over to the text for today. I left off in verse 3, so we'll begin in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were so proud of what they were hearing of their growing faith, their growing love towards one another. They were growing even though they were going through this terrible persecution at the time. And yet their faith continued to grow even through all that. Now, beginning in verse 5 through 10, Paul is going to refer to Christ's second coming after the tribulation. Verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So he's saying that the ability to grow in your faith in spite of persecution is evidence that you have true saving faith. It was evidence that they had true saving faith. Suffering, I don't want you to be confused. Suffering doesn't get you to heaven. It's our response to suffering that then shows the maturity of our faith and shows that we are saved, okay? It's not like we're earning our salvation by going through these trials, but what it does do is it helps us depend more on God and helps us mature in our faith. Verse 6, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So this affliction, that's trouble and suffering, And what he's referring to is judgment that is going to come on unbelievers at Christ's second coming. Verse 7, and to give relief to you who are afflicted. So refresh, restore, um, and eventually he's going to talk about heaven. We're going to be restored. Our relationship has already been restored, but paradise is going to be restored in heaven. We're going to be in heaven where our sins are forgiven Our debt has been paid in total restoration with God. He says, And to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So this is talking about the second coming. This isn't the rapture. Remember the rapture, he doesn't come to earth. We go up to meet him. And it's my belief that happens before the tribulation because I've showed you several times the verses that say believers are going to be kept from the wrath of God. And so we go up and join Jesus before the seven-year tribulation, and then the seven-year tribulation happens, and it's really, really bad. And then there's going to be a judgment after the end of the seven years. Remember, there's no Christians going into the tribulation. They've been raptured. It's non-believers. But there will be 144,000 evangelists 
12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. There'll be two witnesses. People will come to faith during the tribulation. And then those are the people that then move into the millennial kingdom. Only the people who come to faith during the seven-year tribulation. And I'll explain that a little bit more in just a second. But when he's talking about Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, it's the angels who are going to be the instruments through whom Jesus will then bring judgment on unbelievers. Let me show you that in Matthew Matthew 13, 41. It says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will gather them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then when you drop down to verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's going to happen? The angels are going to bring judgment and punishment and retribution to these unbelievers. But yet, at the same time, the believers are going to be gathered for peace and relief and gather to the Lord. I'll show you one verse on that. I've got several. Matthew 24, 31. It says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, those are believers, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And so we'll be gathered with him. Larry, can I ask something? Yes. Back a couple of verses before it says, He will come with his mighty angels. You're saying it's he is not coming to earth, it's going to be his mighty angels. No, this now we're talking about the second coming. But in the rapture, he doesn't come all the way to earth. He just comes to the clouds and we go up to join him. And we spent some time talking about that in First Thessalonians. At the rapture, he doesn't come to the earth. It's the second coming that he comes to the earth. All right, that's when he'll come with his mighty angels. Correct, and us with him. Yeah, okay. So now I'm in verse 7, and I said, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, I already read that, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So that's talking about people who have rejected the gospel. Vengeance is God's to give. There's many verses on that. Let me just show you Romans 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So everybody has enough to know that there's a God and that they are in sin and they need a Savior so many people just want to do it their own way. That's what that's referring to. We spent some time talking about this several lessons ago. There's different levels of hell, just like there's different rewards and we'll have different responsibilities in heaven. In hell, there are different levels of punishment. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if you're in hell, it's bad. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to be there. But it is interesting 
that God is a righteous, just, and fair God. And so people who had more revealed to them and rejected, they're going to be punished more than people who didn't have as much opportunity and not as much revealed to them. If you want some verses on that, go look at Luke 12, verses 47 to 48. So the day of the Lord judgment really comes in two phases. It's going to come at the end of the tribulation. So only people who come to faith during the tribulation then move into the thousand-year millennial kingdom of the Lord here on earth. That's in Revelation 19, 11 through 21. And then at the end of the thousand years, all unbelievers from all ages are then going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. And they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity eternally separated from God. I went through that with you a couple of lessons ago. That's in Revelation 20. You can go look at that, but no unbelievers make it through the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is just for non-believers. We as believers do not go before the great white throne judgment. And you can look at that. They're all judged. When you go look at Revelation, they are judged on the basis of their works. That's how they wanted to be judged. They didn't want a Savior. They wanted to stand on their own, and God grants them their wish. Books are open to go through their whole life, and none of them make it. The best way, I think, just very simplistically to look at this, to look at these end times is, and again, there are different views that saving faith Christians have, But I've explained to you why my view previously is that the rapture happens before the tribulation. So I think the best way to look at it is what's included in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the tribulation. That is for non-believers, okay? The rapture is really for the church and for us as believers in the church age. It's a separate event. And it's dealing with the church and we're drawn up to be with the Lord and then we come back down with him in the second coming and we reign with him during the millennial kingdom. When you look at the millennial kingdom, think of that as more being for Israel. That's when the promises that were made to Israel are going to be fulfilled that have not yet been fulfilled in terms of having a kingdom having a king on the throne, that being Jesus, that's going to all happen during the millennial kingdom. There'll be Gentiles that go into that, but it's mainly a focus on fulfilling the promises that God had made to Israel. And then at the end of the thousand years, I've described that to you before, because there are humans, okay, we're going to be in our glorified bodies during the millennial kingdom, reigning with Jesus, we'll have responsibilities to do. Remember, going in the millennial kingdom, it's only believers. It's only believers. But Satan has been bound up for a thousand years. He's not exerting any influence on earth during the thousand years. It's only believers that go in. The believers who came to belief during the tribulation. Believers from the church age have been raptured up. And now we come down and we're with Jesus, but we have glorified bodies then. I know this is complicated. But by the time the thousand years goes through, the believers that came into the millennial kingdom from the tribulation, they're having babies, they're having kids, there's generations, generations. There's going to be a rebellion. There's going to be some that still fall away, which just proves that it isn't just Satan causing our trouble. 
we have screwed up flesh, okay? And they're going to want to rebel. Satan's going to be released just for a short time, gather up the people who are wanting to rebel against Jesus, and the battle doesn't last very long. It's over. They'll come together. They're going to try to bring a battle against Jesus. The battle's over quickly, and then that's when the great white throne judgment happens, and then we move into the new heaven and new earth. Okay, that's very simplistic. Okay, let's continue on. The main thing is you need to realize, and I think you do, there's not such thing as annihilation. A lot of people think I can live like hell, and then I die, and it's over. So I can live however I want now, then I die. Nope, it's going to be really bad for you. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell, and hell is eternal separation from God. If annihilation were a thing, if it was true that you would just cease to exist, um, then it wouldn't say that you go to eternal destruction, that it lasts forever. Eternal means it keeps going on and on. The suffering is forever into eternity, and there's no second chances at all. Verse 9, going back to the text, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. You see that there? Eternal destruction. And what is that? Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Verse 10, when he comes to be glorified, in his saints on that day, so see, there you are, all believers are going to be with him, coming with him, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So all believers are going to marvel at this incredible sight when it happens. What he's describing here is from Revelation 19.14. 19.14, it says, And the armies which are in heaven, that's us, those are the redeemed believers, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him, that's Jesus, on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, that's Satan's kingdom of darkness and unbelievers, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This is what's going to happen there at the end of the tribulation. And you can read on. It's pretty bad. But what happens is the war is going to be over. You can see in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against Jesus, him, who sat upon the horse and against his army. We're part of his army. But this is the battle of Armageddon, and it doesn't last very long. It's over, and Satan's tied up for a thousand years, and we move into the millennial kingdom. Okay, going back to the text, verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power. Paul was always in constant prayer, and we're all commanded to pray, and that's what he was doing. He was praying for these people in the church in Thessalonica. And God somehow works his sovereignty, his will, through our prayers. He wants us to participate with him by praying. He's telling them that they're going to be included in this when Christ returns. We've been called to do that. That's our calling. And because we've been called, we should have good works. It isn't good works that give us our salvation. Let me show you a couple of verses on that just to wrap this up. Let me first go over to John 6:44, and I'll just read that to you real quick. It's just one verse I want to show you. It says, 
No one can come to me, that's no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's our calling. And then 2 Timothy 1.9, let me show you that real quick. I'll actually start in 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. This is Paul writing. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. See, it's not because of anything we did, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And then a couple of more. Let me take us over to Ephesians. And I do want you to go over there. Ephesians is way over to the left after Galatians, after the Gospels, after Acts, Romans, Corinthians. Just kind of go over to the left. You'll find it. A couple of verses there I want to look at. Ephesians 2. And we've looked at this before. I'll begin in verse 8, but I'm going to want to focus on verse 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Just like I've been saying, our faith, our salvation is a gift of God. We can't earn it, can't get there through doing a bunch of sacraments, can't get there by going to church every Sunday. It is a gift. There's nothing you can do to put God in a position that he owes us our salvation. It's a gift. And in case you're unsure, verse 9, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So we have nothing to contribute to it. But when we have saving faith, there should be good works. Because we have faith and we now have the Holy Spirit living in us, we should now have good works. It says, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is responsible for our good works. He performs them in and through us. That's where the good works come. We don't have good works to then earn our salvation, which there are some denominations that think that, and that's not the gospel. And they've got no verses to support that. So let's go back over to the text and finish up. He's talking about we should walk in a way that is worthy of our calling, Because of what Jesus has done for us, that should manifest itself in good works through our saving faith. Verse 12, and so why? Why should we have good works? What's that all about? In order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the purpose is all to bring glory to Jesus. That's what we're here for. That's what the good works are there to do. All this entire plan is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. I'll show you Matthew 5, 16. It says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And a lot of people try to do good works to glorify themselves, and those aren't good works. Good works bring glory to Jesus Christ. So let me summarize what we've read today. The purpose of our calling is to bring glory to Christ now and in the future eternity. We should see our faith and our love of others strengthening as we go through the sanctification process that we were talking about earlier. And we should see that we're able to persevere and grow in our faith when we go through difficult times and trials. And that should be very encouraging to us because it's evidence that we do, in fact, have saving faith. 
There may at times be what appears to be injustice. It may be unfair. Sometimes I've described the situation that happened with my daughter. Doctor mistake when she was just born that left her with serious brain damage. It seemed unfair to me, but God used that terrible situation in a way to teach me a whole lot. Taught me empathy, brought me into a much closer relationship with Jesus Christ. It wasn't fair for Paul to have been locked in prison, and yet that caused him to even grow more in his faith. And certainly it wasn't fair for Jesus, who was perfect, to die a death to pay for our sins. And so it's all part of God's plan. We go through these difficult things in order to grow in our faith. But God is going to come in the future. He's going to judge unbelievers, and they are going to suffer eternal punishment and be separated from God forever, while at the same time, we're going to have eternity with God forever. There is no purgatory, by the way, and there's no second chances. There's no verses in the Bible on it. Heaven and hell, they're real. We need to realize they're real. And when you realize that and how blessed we are that we're not going to hell, we should now live our lives in a way that shows that we're worthy of the grace that God has given us and show gratitude for that. And finally, we should pray for believers and unbelievers. Prayer is just part of God's plan. He wants us participating with him, and prayer is part of that. And so we should be very active in our prayer life. So with that, let me see what you all have on your mind, what resonated with you. How do we apply this further? Larry, it's amazing to me how often, especially in the New Testament, where they talk about the rapture and the I mean, it's throughout a lot of these books. Yes, it is. And, and it's not, I used to think it was just Revelation, but it's it's almost, there's references to it almost every single epistle. Or Yeah, we've been covering it a lot in the last year. It seems like a lot of the scripture we've been reading has dealt with it and kind of given a high-level view of the end times to you all many, many times. And I know it's hard to wrap your head around, but it's real. And it's throughout Scripture, as you say. I think God wants us to understand how this is going to unfold. We know how the end of the world is going to come. We don't know when, but it's laid out. It's going to happen. And if people would just open this book up and read it, I think then they might take a little different view of they need a Savior. Because it's very clear when you go read at the end of Revelation, non-believers don't make it. They're going to be judged exactly how they want. They want to stand on their own. They don't need a Savior. They're going to do it their way. Just like Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. They want to do it their way. It ain't going to turn out good. And also by reading this book, you can find out how easy it is, how simple it is to have the road paved in your direction. Yes. How easy it is. and Easy for us. Not so easy for Jesus, but easy for us. He made it really easy for he us. He made it real easy. Yeah. There for the taking. Yeah. And he wants to see everyone come to faith. At the same time, because not many people know about this, I think it's on us to help educate them and realize that heaven and hell are real. You're not just going to die and disappear. Eternal separation is a real thing. And because of that, I think that we should try to help people become more aware of what actually is written in this Bible. Because when you look at it, it's bad. We're going to study Revelation eventually. I mean, it's bad. And even tribulation is bad. It's really bad. 
If we'll really stop and listen and watch and recognize the opportunities we get, we get opportunities every single day, but we choose not to recognize them or we're afraid not to go there. Because or we're, we're too busy. Or we're too busy. We think what I've got is more important than winning my brother to Christ. Yeah. But if we'll go there, he'll always open the door. He'll prepare a way for us. And even if you just plant a seed, yeah. even if you don't have the knowledge enough to take it all the way through, but if you just plant a seed where someone can stop and think. Well, everybody has the knowledge because as a Christian, you've been changed. And all you got to do is just say, look, just like the blind man, I don't know, but now I can see. And all I can tell you is this is how I was before. My simple thing is, because I grew up Catholic, I didn't know where I was going to go. I was pretty sure, I knew I wasn't going to heaven. I was hoping for purgatory. And finally somebody showed me the true gospel. And it's, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved. When you know that you're a sinner, you can't get right with God on your own. And I knew I couldn't. I knew I was failing miserably as a young kid. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. I had peace immediately. And that's what I tell people. It's like, man, not knowing where you're going to go when you die, I was not at peace. Now I have total peace. I can go through little tribulations, but I know where I'm going in the end. That's all you got to do. Nobody knows your story better than you. You don't have to go to seminary to know your story. Just tell your story. And God will use those words in a way that will impact the people around you. That's how to plant the seeds. That's good. I enjoy using this study as an outreach, as a tool to open dialogue. Mm -hmm. Invite people in. Or to listen to the pot. They can't come here. They can listen to the recording. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.